We've all been through it, we've all experienced it, and maybe, maybe even very recently with Christmas not too far in the distant past, that experience that, that you've had of being excited, being elated to give a certain gift to a certain individual. Now, maybe it was not even something that you anticipated getting for them. You were shopping for someone else or not even shopping, just scrolling online or, or in a store. And, and the moment you saw that item, it made you think of that person and you knew they had to have it. You had to get that gift for that individual. And you were so excited about it that that, that was filling you with more anticipation and joy than even the prospect of anything else that you might receive at Christmas or in return for it. Your, your face is, is beaming a mile wide, your smile as you're wrapping that, pre, that present for the individual and, and just imagining what it's going to be like when they unwrap it, to see their reaction and how much they're going to appreciate it. And then you give the gift to that individual and it falls flat. Maybe they, they don't loathe the gift, but they certainly did not appreciate it as much as you thought they would. They were not filled with the joy and the eagerness upon receiving that gift that you thought they would in giving it to them. We've experienced that. And I, I wonder this morning if, if you thought of that in the Gospel. If you've ever asked if the Lord himself feels that way when he gives the gift of his word, and it's received like that. Especially when you consider the lengths to which the Lord went to not only plan his divine purposes, his salvation in eternity, long before we existed, but in every step, every detail that it took in carrying that out. In fact, from the very first moment that that death-inducing sin was ushered into the world, God countered that with his life-begetting promise of a Savior. And then from age to age, he took the necessary steps to, to continue to pass on that promise, doing so repeatedly through the patriarchs. And then after that time of the patriarchs, God sent his own private army of prophets, armed with the promise, armed with his very words, to deliver and pass it on to his chosen people. And throughout history, even secular history, we witness, as, as we heard in the, the quote from Psalm 2 in one of our readings, that, that, that nations conspire against him, and yet throughout history, God orchestrated the rise and fall of every king, of every authority, of every empire, and, and commerce, and language, and every detail of the world. God governed, controlling all of it, so that at just the right time, he was ready to come into our world to deliver his gift. And having been anointed at his baptism and set apart for the public ministry, then we see Jesus making good on that, on that promise. The reason that he was sent in this world to preach and then carry out salvation. And certainly the Lord must have expected that such a joyful message would equally be received with joy. And we too share the same expectation, don't we? We whose hearts have been changed, who have been brought to see who Jesus is as our Savior, to know that our salvation rests solely in his hands and his work from start to finish. We know the blessings of, 
of this Word of God, the benefit of this Word of God as, as we have applied it and lived it in our own lives. We even call it the good book. We know the many good things that come about our lives as we make this more and more a part of our lives. And even as we gather in God's house, most often it's not out of simply mere obedience or requirement. You're here because you want to be here, because you value the message that comes from the Word of God. And so you have come to expect and to assume that that would be the way that anybody would receive the Word of God. With joy, with happiness, with eagerness. And it even appeared that that was how it was being received as we see Jesus in this little short stop in his preaching stint in his hometown of Nazareth. As Luke described it for us, when Jesus was a guest preacher or rabbi in front in the synagogue, as he had unrolled that scroll of Isaiah, read from it, and then continued with his sermon, look at how Luke describes all of the listeners that were gathered there. In verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They could not look away. They were glued to Jesus and the words that he was speaking. And then in verse 22, Luke describes that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They spoke well of him. They were amazed. This was not your run-of-the-mill everyday Saturday in the synagogue. This was something different. This was something special as they were listening to Jesus. But then how... How did things turn so drastically, so quickly, to such a degree that in the same account, Luke would, by the end of Jesus' preaching, describe this scenario for us. In verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. How do you get from people who were fixed on Jesus, who were amazed at his teaching and so impacted by it, to wanting to chuck him off a cliff. And so quickly. How, why does, does that happen? It's because Jesus, I guess simply put, Jesus called them out. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they were starting to connect the dots. As impressed as they were by this preacher, when they recalled, when they remembered, wait just a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Suddenly everything ran the risk of, of the excitement dying out and, and fizzling because they, they knew Joseph's son. They knew this hometown boy. This was the same kid that grew up on their streets. Now he was just a little bit older and he was preaching. And Jesus connected the dots in their hearts that that they were going to next then expect, well, wait a minute, if this is your hometown, why don't you show us some of the stuff that you've shown the surrounding villages and towns? Perform for us some of the, the miracles and the signs and the wonders. We know who you are, Jesus. You're the little guy that grew up among us. Prove to us that you really are something special. And then Jesus took it to another level 
when he brought into his preaching the examples of Elijah and Elisha, prophets that were sent in the Old Testament, not just to, to God's people Israel, but actually to do their ministry and their work outside of Israel. And that's when they connected the dots. They, they were realizing that Jesus was convicting. Jesus was accusing them of the very same treatment of rejecting God's messengers. It really shouldn't surprise us that they responded to the Word of God this way, that they reacted this way, because the same hearts that, that beat in, in them are the hearts that beat in us and are capable of the very same thing when it comes to the Word of God. Now, now granted, the, the message of the Word is, is uplifting and encouraging enough. When you look at the very verses that Jesus quoted from the prophet uh, Isaiah that he read from, there are words there that, that are, are uplifting, are encouraging, that build us up. Words like good news, words like freedom, recovery of sight, the Lord's favor. Any sort of sermon or, or message any sort of speech that includes those sorts of phrases and verbiage is going to be well-received from people, right? We grant that. The problem comes in when we make the connection with the audience, the people to whom those words are directed. When we look at the other part of those phrases and we see the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed, and those aren't very flattering, are they? We don't want to presume that those words describe us. Those don't apply to us. Surely, Lord, you must be talking about somebody else who is far less righteous than I am than to use those kind of terms or words to describe me. And so suddenly what was an uplifting, encouraging message isn't so much when I see what God calls those for whom that good news, that gospel, is intended. No, I, I don't think it's unique to us as confessional Lutherans. I am sure that there are other Christian uh, church bodies that have kind of this same, a similar odd relationship with God's law. And, and here's where it's a little bit weird. Sometimes in our pride, we, we think that law and talking about sin is our calling card. We draw the conclusion that that's what sets us apart from from all the other churches out there. And so we look at the mega churches, we look at the church down the street that's growing, and we naturally draw the conclusion, well, they don't preach sin, they don't talk about the law, because otherwise they wouldn't grow. And it's almost as if that's why we're here. That, that that's what we delight in, that we gather in God's house because, yes, preacher, we want to hear you pe preach fire and brimstone. We want to hear you rail on the besetting, the blatant sins of others. But let me, let me make an observation. That if that's your relationship with the law, if, if that's what you crave, that's what you're here to listen to, that's what brings you delight then either I'm not doing it right or the, the law is not hitting its mark. Because when we are, are rejoicing at, at the law being preached in its full severity, the reaction that ought to be had is the exact same reaction 
of Jesus' listeners in the synagogue that day, that you ought to, to want to run and throw Jesus or his representative speaking on his behalf off of a cliff, that each and every Sunday, if the law is doing its job, really, you should be rushing up here and forcibly tying me up, driving out to sunset cliffs and saying, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want to hear that kind of message anymore. Because the law is not supposed to fill us with joy and delight at hearing it. That ought not be the reason that we gather in God's house. The law accuses and convicts and kills. The law condemns. If we find our delight in the preaching of the law, there is something really wrong. Maybe our relationship with the law is kind of like enjoying a, a, nice, a nice campfire. You stay at a distance and you can, you can appreciate the, the coziness, the crackling fire. We see the law from a distance and, and we can appreciate that finally there's something that is a moral compass for this world, something that points out what's wrong and, and what we ought to do right. That's what the world needs, as if it just needs to be pointed out everything that's wrong. But then if you've been around that campfire and you're roasting marshmallows and it's a nice warm campfire and your, your roasting stick is also nice and short, you realize you have to get a little too uncomfortably close to the fire. And the closer you get, the less pleasant it is. In fact, now it's suddenly painful. What was nice to enjoy, the glow and the warmth, the coziness of it, suddenly is not so pleasant the closer to home it hits. That's how the law should work. To convict us, to accuse us, to help us connect the dots that, yes, I am the poor individual. I am the captive. I'm the prisoner. I'm the one who's blind. I'm the one who rebels. I'm the hostile enemy to God. That's me that the law is making clear. And when the law does that, dear friends, then the gospel can do what only the gospel can do. Then those words of Isaiah breathe life into our beat-down, weary, guilty, shame-filled souls. Then those words of Isaiah, words of, of good news, of freedom, of recovery of sight, of the Lord's favor, those lift me up out of a despair that nothing else can, as only the good news of Jesus can do. To realize that when the law makes it clear that, that I am the one who is enslaved and imprisoned by sin and even death, but that I have been set free. To realize that the law points out I am blind by nature, but, but the good news of the gospel has opened my eyes to see Jesus as the one who saves my, my Redeemer, my, my precious Savior. And, and to realize that when I have been beaten down, when I have been worn out, that I hear recovery, refreshment, rejoicing, renewal through the good news of the gospel. That was what Jesus came to preach. And not just to preach, that's what Jesus came to deliver. Jesus was stripped of his freedom so that we could have ours. Jesus endured the, the brunt, all of the, the beatings and the suffering that that the consequences of our sin actually deserved, and he did that so that we could be, could be free. In fact, the same, the same prophet that Jesus quoted in his sermon in Luke, that same prophet Isaiah says elsewhere, 
a very meaningful way in chapter 53. He says, referring to Jesus, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. God made the promise. Jesus came to preach that promise and then to carry out that promise, to deliver that promise for us. Think about this. The the very same Savior preaching that law in all its severity from that synagogue and so many others is the same Savior who willingly endured the wrath of that law in our place. There's no better news than that that you aren't going to get what you deserve. I'm not going to get what I deserve because Jesus kept the law. Jesus put himself under the law. Jesus did away with the law so it no longer condemns or convicts us. Dear friends, we have been set free. And we also have purpose then, don't we? It doesn't stop there. What Jesus started in the synagogue, we get to continue today. They said to the, to the children, we have the privilege of passing on life and light in a world that is so dark, in a world that is so lost, in a world that, quite frankly, has so many souls right now headed to hell. But God has given us all that is needed to change that. And my encouragement would be to you to shift the way, really the expectation that you have as you share that good news with others. You'll be far less disappointed if the expectation is that that message is going to be rejected. Rather than being filled with, with hope and then disappointed every time that somebody else expresses little to no interest in the good news of the gospel. Expect that. And it's going to be all that much more joyful when the Holy Spirit through you does something different. He actually uses you to to bring to to light, to open somebody's eyes who are blind to see Jesus as you do, as the Savior. So when you hear those, those no's, don't take it as rejection, but rather redirection. That God is now saying, okay, not now, that person, on to the next one, and to the next, and to the next. Don't worry, there are plenty of souls that need to hear this good news. God has changed our hearts through both law and through the gospel, the good news, so that we are excited, that we are energized, that we are are filled with zeal to do the work that he has given to us. We'll take a page out of Jesus' book. What was his response? Now, maybe you can't do part of this, but the other part you can. Luke tells us at the close of this account, when they were ready to to chuck him off the cliff, verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus didn't throw a pity party for himself in Nazareth. He didn't just grumble and complain and say, what's the point, Father? Why'd you send me here if this was going to be the response of people? He went on his way because there were other places that he had to preach. So do not be discouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ. The expectation ought to be rejection. And then rejoice all the more when God in his grace does something amazing in somebody else's life through you as you share his powerful word with them. 
where he opens their eyes to see the joy of salvation that you and I have as well. May we have the the boldness that those disciples prayed for in our second reading today, not to shy away from, not to be deterred from sharing that message, but to share it all the more boldly. Amen.